Bibles to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. And I should say at first, thank you, Matt. We have quite a few people out, and so Matt, uh, I think probably a little bit last minute, jumped in to do music, and so we appreciate uh, him doing that, and we always appreciate Kathleen. As you're turning there to Matthew chapter 27, where we'll continue looking at this account of the death of Christ, his atoning sacrifice on our behalf, that is, in fact, the title of this morning, The Cross of Christ, His Atoning Sacrifice, or something like that. I can't remember what I ended up putting in the bulletin. But it is a look at what Christ endured for our salvation, and this is then coming in a series of messages on the cross of Christ that will continue after this for a few more. But in all of the messages, this is at the heart of it. This is at the heart of our redemption. This is at the heart of what our sin required in order for it to be forgiven by God. It is, in fact, one of the most important events, in fact, maybe the most important event in all of creation. It is what God anticipated, in fact, before he created the world, for Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It's what he anticipated in the garden at the fall of man when he promised that one would come to destroy the work of Satan. It is what he anticipated throughout the whole history of his people, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle, then the temple. It is, in fact, the very centerpiece of God's work in forgiving the sins of his people. It is the suffering of Christ, his atoning suffering. Which is simply to say, that which Christ endured that satisfied God's righteous wrath for our sin, that we might be forgiven. It is what he endured. It is the price that he paid. Read with me this morning from verses 45 through 50. We'll only get to verses 45 through 46 uh, this morning. Uh, We'll mention a few other verses after that, but primarily verses 45 through 46. Uh, But we're going to read from 45 down through verse 50, and then we'll look at it a bit more closely. Verse 45, Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed And gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Go back up to verse 45 and let's note first the anguish of Christ's atoning sacrifice. The anguish of Christ's atoning sacrifice. And Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sets that up for us in verse 45. When he gives a description of the land during this time. He says, now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now, Christ was on the cross for a total of about six hours. 
about six hours, beginning at 9 a.m. in the morning, going till 3 p.m. in the afternoon, which would be about the time when he uttered the words that Matthew records for us here. These are then the final hours of Christ on the cross. It is culminating his atoning work, everything that Matthew has been leading up to. It's the apex or the climax of the suffering that he's endured up to this point, which has already been great and in a broad sense is a part of the atonement. But here he takes us into a different place in the actual heart of the atoning work of Christ. And he describes these three hours, these final three hours on the cross or the events surrounding it first by saying that there was a darkness over the whole land. Now there have been a variety of explanations about what may have been the actual cause of this darkness and none can be absolutely sure, but we know that it was caused by God. It was in its essence a supernatural darkness that was designed by the eternal plan of God to correspond with the suffering of His Son for the sins of His people, of His atoning work. Certainly could not be an eclipse Because of the time of year and just the nature of the atmosphere at that time. But it is something that God did. God who created the sun. God who rules over creation. God who caused the sun to stand still even in battle. Recorded for us in Joshua 10. Here he hides its light from the land. The land here being not necessarily the whole earth. As a matter of fact it's most certainly not the whole earth. But the land of Judea. The land where these events were taking place. And the purpose of this darkness that God sent on the land, and this would be maybe the first point, is that it was a physical sign to the world. It was a physical sign to the world. It was a way to illustrate what was actually taking place during these three hours. It was a physical sign of the full weight of human sin and evil being placed on the Son of God. Darkness is a term that we're familiar with. Anybody who reads the Bible is familiar with. It's used very often as a a metaphor to speak of the way that sin has affected man, the effects of sin on man. Matthew's used it that way in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, people who were sitting in darkness, those who were sitting in the shadow of death. He mentions in chapter 6, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness, of spiritual ignorance and blindness. John 1.5 says that the light shines in the darkness, the truth of God, even the light of Christ shines in the darkness. He later says men loved the darkness. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness. And on it goes. And in all of these ways, darkness is the way that God has designed to speak metaphorically of the world of fallen humanity under the influence of Satan and the demonic realm full of spiritual darkness, rebellion, corruption, violence, hatred, unbelief, and all manner of wickedness. But darkness is not only a metaphor for human sin and all of its effects, it's also used in Scripture as as something that accompanies or illustrates the judgment of God on sin, the judgment of God on sin. It's used that way in many places throughout Scripture. Amos chapter 5, let me just give you one example. There there are many, I won't read them all. 
But just listen to Amos 5. This is God speaking through his prophet of judgment that is to come. He says in verse 18, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. He says later in verse 20, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? We read in Acts this morning a quote from Joel 2, where there will be darkness and signs in heaven and so forth that will accompany the judgment of God at the end of this age. There are many places where that is illustrated in Scripture. And that is, in fact, the emphasis here. The darkness is picturing primarily the judgment of God for sin. The judgment of God for sin. It is, in fact, ultimately used to picture the judgment of God for sin in hell. If you'll remember, Jesus said in chapter 8, verse 12, that the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Something repeated in other places as well. In 2 Peter, chapter 2, The judgment of the wicked is described in this way, false teachers here. These are springs without water, mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. So here the idea of darkness isn't such a metaphor, but it is a physical sign of this anger and this judgment of God against all of the gathered lies and immorality and violence and sin and blasphemy and rebellion of his people against him. This is the moment where his judgment is being brought to bear here on the Son of God, on his Son in place of his people. Here he has become a curse, enduring the curse of the law for his people. And again, it's a foreshadowing of the kind of darkness that will come upon the earth when he returns to finally judge the kingdoms of this world, the rebellious kingdoms of this world. And so then he says, at the end of this darkness, in verse 46, about the ninth hour after the end here of these, that three hours of darkness, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this is the second point then. It is the anguished cry of the suffering of the Son of God. Now you will remember these words from Psalm 22.1. They are in fact the words that open Psalm 22.1. Now we've considered Psalm 22 as we've walked through this account because there are many things in that psalm that by God's design were picturing prophetically, if you will, These events that would happen in the greater son of David, the ultimate son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. It anticipated the mockery of the people while he was suffering. It anticipated some of the physical elements that Christ would endure through the ordeal of crucifixion, bones out of joint and so forth and things like that. But at the heart of Psalm 22 in terms of its lament is that anguish of soul that the righteous feel at the hand of the wicked. What the righteous soul endures 
when being persecuted and hated and wrongly treated by the world. However, there is a bigger picture in Psalm 22, if you read through the whole thing, which would be good to do, but we won't, in which there is this trust in God that is expressed by the psalmist. In other words, he doesn't end in anguish, but he ends in an affirmation of his trust in God, of God's deliverance. And because of that fact, some see here in the Lord's cry, well, first of all, they assume that he didn't say just the first words, that he possibly quoted the whole psalm. And they see then here, not so much the distress, although that's part of it, but ultimately an expression of his faith in God. In other words, he's identifying his, what he's suffering with Psalm 22, which ultimately will end in his deliverance. However, I, I think that really misses the emphasis here. It misses the main point. What is being emphasized here is not the deliverance that he knows will come, but the distress that he feels at the abandonment of his father. And it is hard to believe, at least for me, that if he quoted the whole thing, there would be no indication of that in all of the Gospels. That would be fairly significant. But what is quoted, undoubtedly, is the cry of anguish that the psalmist felt in his distress. In his distress. Now, this is not to say, however, that Christ somehow lacked faith or that this statement is somehow a statement of his unbelief or lack of trust in the Father. It isn't. And in fact, in the statement, there is, even in the distress, elements of his trust and his faith in God. In fact, his very act of suffering was a result of his faith and obedience to the Father. He knew that there was joy at the end. He knew that he would be raised, but those things are evidently at this point very far from his mind and his experience of what he was feeling. In that moment, the sense that most dominated his emotions was the very real abandonment of the Father in that moment. As a matter of fact, one author says this, speaking of it, it was not merely that he felt deserted by God as the psalmist had been. In reality, he was deserted by God. And so he felt that. And the cry exposes that. It, it shows what was going on in the depths of his soul. It's an expression of anguish, however, that is yet clinging to God. It's a cry of As I said, distress and not distrust. And really, in this way, while there's, of course, an atoning reality here for Christ, He is in everything a model of us and a model for our faith. And in this way, He displays, even in this moment, the kind of faith that God's true children display in their life. I mean, it is, in fact, pulling from the words of David out of the psalm, which was a very human experience. It is that expression of faith that we know that when everything else seems dark, when everything else seems against us, in the depths of human pain and anguish, the believing soul, like David did, ultimately displayed here in Christ, leans on God and yet trusts Him and yet clings to Him and yet doesn't leave Him, doesn't deny Him, but holds on to Him. True faith cries out in distress. 
and yet clings to Christ in trust. And here, the son is in the greatest experience of distress, and yet he's crying to God in faith, though feeling none of faith's consolations, none of its comforts, none of its hopes in that moment, and yet he clings to his father. But what he expresses here is, in fact, the epitome of human suffering. The epitome of human suffering. Christ, as with every other part of his human experience and his human relationship with God, experienced what could be experienced of God and the human experience, if you will, to its fullness. To its fullness. So the suffering that he endures here as the God-man in his soul is the very apex of human suffering. It's the most that it would be possible to suffer as a human being. It would be the most anguish that it would be possible to feel in his soul. In this way, in some ways, this was anticipated in the garden when he was distressed when he was sorrowful and he went away from about a stone's throw from his disciples and he went to pray to his father and scripture records that such distress that there was blood mixed with his perspiration and it fell to the ground such emotional distress here it's something even more in fact this is what he was so fearful of what he was here enduring That's noticed in one part, and the fact that his very words begin with, My God, my God. Even in the garden, even under the distress of anticipation of what would come, he yet called God his Father. He yet called God his Father. Here, even that filial sense, even that sense of sonship, is in some way lost where he refers to God not as my father, but my God, in the only place in Scripture in, that he does in this way. Of course, he says, for example, at the end of John, I'm going to my God and your God, my father and your father. But here, addressing, addressing the father in prayer is the only time he does not refer to him in the intimate terms of his relationship. But it is my God. And unlike the psalmist, however, the anguish behind this cry then is of a depth that none but the perfect humanity of Christ, united to a holy and divine nature, indeed the eternal Son of God, could experience. It was only possible because of the very nature of who he was as the God-man to experience this kind of suffering. And he did experience it to the fullness And and such was the fullness of his suffering then here in this moment that it was enough to satisfy God's holy provocation and anger against human sin. He satisfied it completely. Whatever he suffered, it was enough to do that. We'll mention this later, but listen to Isaiah 53. The Lord was... Pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He says later, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. So whatever is behind this cry, whatever is the real experience that he had, it was enough anguish that it satisfied 
divine wrath and judgment against human sin. So it was a degree of human suffering and internal anguish that matches the depth of sin for which he was suffering. It is a mystery, ultimately. But it is also, and we would notice here, a foretaste of the kind of suffering that is also to come upon the wicked. Those who remain in rebellion until death. Second Thessalonians says they will be put away or cast out or removed from the presence of God forever. It is a sense for eternity of the wicked, of a complete abandonment by God, a total forsakenness by God, completely out of His presence. That is what's behind the wicked, the unbelieving, who will be in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's that kind of suffering, it's that that type or kind of suffering that Jesus is here experiencing, yet to an infinite degree. And so then we would also notice that because his suffering is so great, because it is so deep, because it is so comprehensive, that it demonstrates in a way that only this kind of suffering could the reality of human sin, the reality of our sin, of your sin, of my sin. Because there was no other way for God to be satisfied other than that Christ, the eternal Son, would endure this kind of suffering. It was necessary in order for God to provide an atonement for sin. It was necessary for God to provide an atonement for sin, a payment for sin. And I would just note here as well that because this is the case, because Christ actually suffered as he did suffer, that it makes foolish, in fact reprehensible, the idea that somehow we can atone for sin by things that we do. That somehow if we do something wrong, we can do something right that will make up for it. The cross abolishes that kind of thinking. It makes it foolish and ridiculous. The idea that somehow there's enough goodness in us that enables us to meet God's righteous standard in order to be in His presence, which is what everybody who is not genuinely a Christian believes at some level in their heart, even openly or secretly, they believe that, who is not trusted in Christ. But the idea that this was the cost for human sin, for forgiveness, utterly dispels the idea that God could be pleased by us apart from a trust in His Son and the work that He did in His Son. There is uh, no other way, no other way for our sin to be atoned for. But what did our sin cost? What actually did He suffer? What does this What is revealed in this cry that he says, why have you forsaken me? Well, he suffered, as he says, an utter sense of being forsaken by God. An utter sense of being forsaken by God the Father. The wages of sin is death. Death has as its most essential idea... The idea of separation, there's things that flow out of that, all of the rebellion and wickedness. But it is being separated from God. There's 
the death in the garden, they were, began the process, Adam and Eve did, of physical death, being separated from this body ultimately as it dies. They were cast out of God's presence. They hid themselves. They felt that separation within themselves. And then they hid themselves from God because they were ashamed all of a sudden of the guilt and the corruption that was in their hearts. And they didn't want God's holy gaze to see them. They foolishly hid themselves. God separated himself from them and the fact that he put them out of the garden. They no longer enjoyed the communion and the fellowship that they had once shared with him. There is, of course, the ultimate death, which is, as Paul already said in 2 Thessalonians, being forever cast out of the presence of God and knowing only his abhorrence and not his favor in any way, shape, or form. So it is here then a death that Christ is experiencing in in all of its ways, in all of its ways, here captured in the idea of being forsaken. Now, an unbeliever knows little of this sense of being abandoned by God. In fact, an unbeliever in this world can live their life uh, with no communion with God and think that everything is fine and have no great distress from not having communion with God because they've never had communion of God and so they don't know what they don't have and they, that they have lost. And so there's really no sense of being able to connect in, in that way spiritually with what it means to be abandoned by God. But a believer knows this sense, a little bit of it, can, can understand it in a little bit more of a degree, that terrible sense that if you're a believer, everyone has had at some point of your life that God is distant, that God is far, that there's not those consolations of faith, that there are those, those times where God seems far away and there's nothing for a believer that is more distressing to our soul than that. And particularly so when there is a consciousness of sin. When there's a consciousness of sin, we feel God's holy displeasure, his removal of his presence, his standing far off, the one whom our soul truly loves and desires, is cut off from his favor and from his presence. Job illustrates that for us in some small measure in Job chapter 13, verse 24, he says this. He says, Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? He says that in the the depths of his distress of feeling abandoned by God, of feeling cut off from his presence. The Psalms have many instances of the psalmist praying about the darkness of God hiding his face. And so a believer can experience that to some level. But here, it is of such an incalculable and profound sense of distress and abandonment that it's beyond in degree the capacity of any person who is not the holy and eternal Son of God in flesh to experience. And let me give you at least two reasons that's the case. Two reasons that his suffering and this sense of abandonment is greater than anything that we can fully relate to as human beings. We do again in kind, but not in degree. And the first is this, that as the eternal son in humanity, he had the spirit without measure. He knew no sin. He knew no hindrance, nothing to come between him and his fellowship with the father. 
He knew nothing that would break an intense, consistent, unbroken, soul-satisfying fellowship with the Father, which he experienced throughout his life to the utmost degree that it is humanly possible. He had the Spirit in fullness. He had perfect righteousness. He was, in fact, identified at his baptism as the beloved Son of God. And so none other has known that kind of fellowship and inner experience of joy and delight and unbroken communion with the eternal God. Whatever he experienced, it was consistent with his person as the Son and the delight that he had as the Son. Think of that. John 1.1 tells us that it was in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. He later says that he was in the bosom of the Father, which there is speaking of a great intimacy of relationship and nearness that he experienced as the Son. He said later in his prayer to the Father, that was before these events, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he had experienced in his life a fellowship with God that reflected even his eternal fellowship with the Father. And so you see again that throughout, even in his human experience. John 16, 32, when he's telling the disciples that they're all going to abandon him, he says this, Behold, an hour is coming and has come for you to be scattered each to his own and to leave me alone. And says, I am not alone because the Father is with me. He was strengthened to endure whatever was coming because the Father was with him. We see throughout the life of Jesus that he sought communion with the Father at every moment that he could have. Mark 1.35 says, Early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Luke 5 tells us that he would often slip away and pray there. The synoptics and others tell us, John, that he would sometimes spend the whole night in prayer. He was in constant communion with his Father. And we actually as believers know something of that kind of communion. We know that kind of nearness, those who have the Spirit with the Father, that kind of love and delight in His presence, that kind of joy that comes from His nearness. When we get to heaven, we who know Christ will be like Him and we'll see Him as He is and we'll see the river of the water of life from His throne. We'll be basking in His glory. We will be free from the presence of sin. We all have bodies that are uncorrupted, immortal, ready to live in His presence forever. We will have unbroken, uncorrupted, perfect fellowship and communion with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit forever. Forever. Here, though, we don't know that by any stretch of the imagination in a perfect sense, nothing near what the Son felt, because we still have remaining sin, unbelief, and the lack of His full presence, the full sense of His presence. But now here, the perfect, joy-filled, and unbroken communion is broken in the beloved Son, and He feels abandoned and forsaken by the Father. So the communion that He has always had with the Father is now broken. It's now broken. And again, this is the only time that Jesus does not address him as father. So, in some sense, the fellowship that he has as the divine and eternal son of God is broken with the father. Is broken. 
as he feels in his soul another abandonment as the God-man. This does not mean, of course, that there's some break in the nature of God, who is three in one, that somehow there was disunity at the very core in the nature of God. It doesn't mean that. That would be impossible. God would cease to be God at that point. But in the mystery of the incarnation and in the mystery of the Trinity, what the eternal Son, who was in flesh, experienced at that time was some kind of break. Some kind of break in that fellowship. It's a mystery. Luther, in fact, is said to have gone into seclusion to just try to figure this out and to understand it. And at the end of that seclusion, he came out and said he was as mystified as ever. He couldn't grasp it. What, in fact, happened. So, in one sense, what he experiences here is of a deeper degree of forsakenness that a human any of us could ever experience because he was the eternal son of God in flesh. But there's another reason. There's another reason behind this cry that makes it an anguish of amazing distress. And it's this, that he did not simply and only experience a sense of abandonment of his unbroken fellowship. It's not only that for that moment that fellowship was broken. It's actually more than that. It's actually more than that. Rather, he was made to feel his father's anger and displeasure against his own soul and within himself, who was the embodiment of all that is infinitely holy. And yet, he was made to experience the anger of his father against all that his soul hates and abhors and despises. And not only that, The Father hates and despises in His holy nature, but Christ Himself as the holy and sinless Son of God. So while He was then on the cross, what's what's going on here is that He is being treated, He is being made to feel the weight and the guilt of everything that God hates. Everything that God hates despises everything that God's soul abhors. He is made to feel it. Let me give you just a few words from Isaiah here. Uh, He says this. He says in verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. It says later in verse 6, But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. And so that's what he was experiencing here is that iniquity and the guilt of his people. He was giving himself as a guilt offering. In the words of Galatians 3.13, He was made a curse for us. Which is to say that the consequence and judgment of human guilt was placed on the Son. Not symbolically in some sense as when the Old Testament sacrifices and the animals, but actually. Actually, God's righteous wrath and anger against the culminated guilt of every sin of His people is laid here upon the Son of God in flesh. It's not the death of a martyr. It is the death of a substitute. A substitute. You've heard of substitutionary atonement. It means simply... This, that Christ stood in our place. 
what we deserved, Christ intervened, stepped in our place according to the plan of the Father, and he endured what our sin rightly deserves from the justice of God. By the justice of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He bore our sins in his body. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. One old commentator says this of that verse. We must face the plain meaning of the apostle's strong words. In some sense, which we cannot fathom, God is said to have identified Christ with man's sin in order that man might be identified with God's own righteousness. Now to say this does not mean that Christ became a sinner. Christ did not become a sinner on the cross. Right? If he became a sinner... He would cease to be the sinless son of God and he would cease to be an acceptable sacrifice. It had to be a perfect sacrifice, a holy sacrifice. He did not become a sinner on the cross, but he bore in himself the charge of every sin, the guilt of every sin of man. In fact, his very act of being on the cross, as was mentioned, was the very height and epitome of his obedience. So in the fact, in the very moment that he's enduring the weight of the guilt of the sin of his people, he is at the same time demonstrating his perfect righteousness and his perfect holiness. That he is the sinless son of God who never disobeyed the father. That's the paradox in one sense of what's going on here. And so what it means when Paul says that he was made sin is that he was treated by the Father as if he were the embodiment of the sin of his people. As if he were the embodiment of that there. It's the idea of imputation. God took our sin and placed what was our sin and not Christ's own on him that he might suffer. He counted it to Christ's account so that by faith we could have it removed from our own, the guilt of it. So he laid it on Christ. He was made sin. And consider this even a bit more in thinking about this suffering of Christ here for sin, his atonement. That not only did he do this as one who abhorred the idea of broken fellowship with his father, the idea of sin, but He himself in his own soul, get this, is as holy as the Father himself. Is as holy as the Father himself. So what the Father hates in in the sense of abhorring sin, so does the Son. He is the one of whom the angels said in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That was Christ, John says in John 12, 41, that Isaiah saw. He's so holy that even when a sinful man comes into his presence, uh, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He is equally one who in his soul, it's true of what Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And so here, who abhor, the one who abhors sin is made sin on the cross. He stood in our place. 
He stood in the place of sinners so that the stroke of divine justice due to sinners to his people, he bore himself. His death was not forced upon him. He was not made to do this. It is not the angry God, the Father, appeasing, having his wrath appeased by the loving, good Son. Remember, this was the plan of the Father. It was the Father who sent the Son so that sinners might be reconciled to himself through the Son. It was the Father with the Son who sent the Spirit. It was the Son who voluntarily laid down his life. No one takes it from me. I have been given authority, he says in John 10, to both lay it down and to take it up again. And so, in fact, that's what he's doing. He's laying down his life, his own life, out of love for the Father and love for those given to him by the Father as a sacrifice for sin. And it was a suffering of immeasurable degree. Listen to one describe it in this way. In his human consciousness, he probably did not know how long the suffering would take, yet to bear the guilt of millions of sins, even for a moment, would cause the greatest anguish of soul. To face the deep and furious wrath of an infinite God, even for an instant, would cause the most profound fear. But Jesus' suffering was not over in a minute, or two, or ten. When would it end? Could there be yet more weight of sin, yet more wrath of God? Hour after hour it went on. The dark weight of sin and the deep wrath of God poured over Jesus in wave after wave. Jesus at last cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why must his suffering go on so long? O God, my God, will you ever bring it to an end? And so that is behind then his cry here. And in fact, because of the reality of that kind of suffering... Uh, some have tried to get around it. Ancient heretics just said, well, you know, that was just the human Christ, the spirit of Christ left him, and, and that part never really suffered. Even some early fathers talked about the impossibility, impassibility of God, that only his humanity suffered, that his deity didn't suffer. And all we can say is it's a mystery. Christ is never divided up in Scripture as though he were sometimes the divine side and sometimes the human side. Scripture doesn't talk about Christ like that. You can't say, well, now he's acting out of his divine nature. Now he's acting out of his human nature. Now he's acting out of this. Scripture only talks about the person of Christ who is the God-man. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. And so all we can say, at least is here, is that in some way the God-man, who is the eternal Son in flesh, suffered to that degree. That's all we can say. What all that means and how that happens is only known fully in the mind of God. But that brings to one other point, the second to the last point. That this work then of God on the cross, this work of Christ, is a Trinitarian accomplishment. The only conceivable way for this atonement to be accepted and to be an actual atonement for human sin is if God himself is the one providing it and accomplishing it. Is if God himself is the one providing and accomplishing it. Only God can satisfy the righteous requirement of God, both in his judgment of sin and both in his, of his requirement to be in his presence. Only God can provide what is necessary for man to be forgiven and reconciled. The Father then, as mentioned, planned not only creation, but he planned redemption. It was the Father who sent the Son into the world. It was the Father who gave the Son a people. 
It is the Father who stands as the originator within the Godhead, as the one who laid upon the Son the guilt of the sin of his people. Again, Isaiah 53, 10 says, we read it earlier, the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord there is the Father. The one being crushed is the suffering servant, the Son, as he would be revealed to be. It is the Lord, it is the Father, who is placing this on the Son. We read it earlier, it was the Father of whom it is said, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The Father is doing it. The Son is here who in love and obedience to the Father took on humanity to live a perfect life and to suffer the full weight and the curse of sin to rise again. In order for that to happen, it couldn't be a mere man, even a perfect man, alone because he could at best atone for another person's sin. But to bear the sin of millions of people and satisfy God's wrath against them. This could not be a mere man. It had to be one of a nature equal to God. Equal to God. Only one of that nature could meet the requirements to atone for the sins of the world and bring untold numbers into the presence of God and the eternal fellowship of the Godhead. It was the Spirit who was a part of this as well. Hebrews 9.14 says this, that he offered himself up through the eternal spirit, which I would take to be the Holy Spirit. It was through the eternal spirit that he yielded up himself. The spirit upheld the infinite, holy, and eternal son upon the cross as he bore in his body and his soul the full weight of the sin of the world. In order for even the son to endure that, he needed the spirit to uphold him, the spirit who is equally infinite and eternal and omnipotent, to sustain him who is the eternal son, to bear the wrath of the father against sin. This is the father who is pouring out the wrath. This is the son who in his own soul is enduring and bearing the curse. It is the spirit who is upholding the son in his full atoning and redeeming work as he gives himself as a sacrifice. So the Trinity then is necessary for salvation. Any view of God that is not Trinitarian cannot provide an account for redemption. It's only God, as he's revealed in Christ, as he's revealed in Scripture, that could even provide a sacrifice for human sin. It's only the reality of the incarnation that could make possible the reality here of his substitutionary death. Only a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit can account for the testimony of redemption. In other words, who is then pouring out the wrath? Who is enduring the wrath? Who's upholding during the wrath? Who is the one united to humanity? God, but God is three in one. The God of current Judaism can't do that. There's not three. The God of Islam can't do that. There's not three. And certainly none of the other gods spoused by false religion can do that. Only the God who is, who is Father and who is Son and who is Spirit. Tim Chester says this in a a simple but very helpful book. 
He says this, Only an infinite God could carry the full penalty of the eternal damnation of all who believe. But it is not enough that God dies. God must be forsaken and God must forsake. God must be judged and God must judge. God has died for us and God is satisfied. This could not be true apart from the Trinity. Only the Trinity makes it possible to understand the cross as atonement for our sins. So when we think of redemption, think of it in this way broadly. God is accomplishing his own redemption for himself. In the sense that God is for himself redeeming man to himself. It's God who is doing this. It's God who is doing this. And it is, and this is the last point quickly as we come into the table. It is a, then a completely atoning sacrifice. It is a complete satisfaction of all that God requires from us in terms of penalty for our sin. His son did satisfy his wrath. Christ did satisfy the righteous requirement of God. He did drink the cup of the Father's wrath down to its dregs. Now this was something, again, that none of the Old Testament sacrifices could do. And we're going to look at a later date at the justice of God displayed on the cross. We'll mention this a little bit, a little bit more detail. But listen to the words of David. He said, after his sin in Psalm 51, his great psalm of repentance, he said... You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. In other words, David understood that the sacrifice of animals was not in and of itself a sufficient atonement or pain for his sin as a man made in the image of God. He understood that. He knew that ultimately, though God had ordered him to give a sacrifice, though a sacrifice was an essential part of the worship of God's people to maintain their fellowship and the enjoyments of their relationship covenantly with God, the sacrifice itself was not sufficient to really atone for sin. And is part of the reason why so many had to be offered again and again and again. Because none of them was a sacrifice, ultimately, that paid the penalty for sin. None of it. And so God's people anticipated a sacrifice that would come. Even as Peter mentioned from the lips of David in his first sermon that there was one that was going to come, there was one that would be that sacrifice. A sacrifice that actually would accomplish atonement. And that is the great conundry of human sin against the holy God. How can they be forgiven? How can a man be just before God? And here is the answer. Here is the answer. Because Christ, who is God, united himself to flesh to stand in our place to offer himself as an atonement for sin. As an atonement for sin. So in other words, his death was not potentially going to save his people. He did not make it possible for his people to save. He actually atoned for their sins. It was an actual atonement. The sins of his people were actually paid for. So that there would be, when they were united to him by faith, nothing to be held against them. Because it was born here by Christ. It was born here by Christ. That's what the law anticipated. That's what Christ fulfilled. Listen to Hebrews 10. For the law, since it has, was only a shadow of the good things to come... 
not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, a body you have prepared for me, quoting here from Psalm 40. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written to me of me to do your will, O God. And after saying the above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure, he said, I have come to do your will. In other words, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. By a one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. That's glorious news for those who have tasted of their sin. Here are these people laboring for all of those years under this system that only reminded them of sins, now sees in Christ on the cross a sacrifice that actually atoned for all of those sins. That's why the message of the gospel was there's no more need for the priesthood. Christ is our priest. There's no more need for the animal sacrifices. He is the final sacrifice. The conscience can be made pure, can be made clean, because his sacrifice was a complete and a total sacrifice that satisfied God. That's why in verse 50, he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Why? Because everything was done. As a matter of fact, John 19, 34, he says, it is finished. There's no more sacrifice for sin that could be given. There's nothing necessary. It's final. It's done. It's completed. And in this sacrifice, in his death and ultimately culminating in his resurrection... But in his death, there's something more. Because the other half of 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So as God credited here in this cry that we see demonstrated, our sin, he placed it on him, the guilt of it, in the same way this perfect righteousness of Christ demonstrated by the very act of him giving himself up is then given to his people by faith, by believing. Christ accomplished then everything that was necessary for salvation. His suffering and his death accomplished a satisfaction completely of God's just wrath. His life and ultimately his obedience and his sin-bearing death satisfied completely God's righteous requirement for us. Both of which God accomplished by himself, ultimately for himself, to bless his people with forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. And that is the gospel. That's the glory of faith. That's the glory of a repentant faith. 
Now, we'll see as we go on that some still mocked and didn't believe. But if you have felt the reality of your sin, then this is the sacrifice that you've trusted in. This is the work of Christ. This is the work of Christ. It's not merely a pity for a man who's undergoing suffering that we see here. Those who believe, but we see the eternal Son of God who laid down His life for us, who gave Himself as a sacrifice for our sin and who fully atoned for it. And that means as well that for any sinner, either the one that is being drawn to Christ by His Spirit or the one already in Christ, no matter how deeply you feel the depth of your sin and come to understand its seriousness, there is an atoning sacrifice that is always deeper still. The death of Christ on behalf of his people. Nothing, nothing can keep us who have trusted in Christ. And nothing will, because of his own divine plan, from being in his presence forever. How can you stand in his presence blameless with great joy? It is because Christ suffered in our place and brings us near to the Father. With that thought, let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. I'll pray and then the men will come and pass out the elements. Father, we thank you so much for this provision of a Savior. Our God, how can we return to you the gratitude that's due your name? We can offer up our lives as a living sacrifice acceptable to you, not being conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We can offer to you lips of praise that extol your grace. We can seek you daily through your word. We can serve you faithfully in this world. But even through all eternity and all of the delights and the glories of heaven, we will never exhaust and never tire And never grow weary of singing your praise, of providing for us salvation. There is no greater reality in this universe than that we can be forgiven through the death and the resurrection of your Son. And I pray if there's any here who are blind to that fact, or it's just a religious fact, or they have a general and a vague sense that Christ died for sin, but they have not trusted in you to cleanse them from their sin, that you would open their eyes even today, and that they may come to a genuine faith in your Son. The rest, let us rejoice and commit ourselves to you as we remember these things in the table that you have given to us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.